Last week, Bishop Caggiano helped us prepare to have a good and productive Lent. Today, we're going to talk about a couple recent popes on Let Me Be Frank. First, a look at the life and papacy of John XXIII. Part of this discussion, of course, has to be about ecumenism and Vatican II. And then, in the second segment, we'll look at the short pontificate of John Paul I. Oh, and Bishop Caggiano will talk about the process of canonization, how do holy people become official saints in the Catholic Church. Do not touch that dial. We're on the radio at 1350 AM and 103.9 FM, and we're on the Veritas Catholic Network mobile app on your phone. Want to grab the app? We're in the Apple App Store, the Google Play Store, or at veritascatholic.com. Let Me Be Frank is brought to you by a grant from Foundations in Faith. St. John Paul II told young people, the church needs your youthful ideas in order to make the gospel of life penetrate the fabric of society. So, Foundations in Faith is inviting all Diocese of Bridgeport parishes to apply for parish support grants from the St. John Paul II Fund for Religious Education and Faith Formation. The St. John Paul II Fund focuses on young people and their ideas to elevate and invigorate their faith formation experience. Applications are open now until April 1st. To learn more or to apply, visit www.foundationsinfaith.org. All right, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank, everybody. Uh, I'm Steve Lee, and it is my great pleasure, as always, to introduce Bishop Frank Caggiano. Good morning, Steve. Good morning. Morning, Excellency. Happy, happy Lent. Thank you. Yeah, I was wondering, I was going to say Happy Ash Wednesday to you, but I don't know is that, <laughs> that's yeah, the right no, way. What, well, happy in the sense of rejoicing, joyful. Yeah, it kind of fits. Yeah. But we know what it means. Right, right. right. It's better mm-hmm. than just pointing at the ashes on your head and giving you a thumbs up mm-hmm. or something, right? <laughs> So now, as a moment of conscience, I'm wondering to myself, for you and I and our readers, don't answer, of course, did we do our homework from our last episode? Are we ready for the start of today? The three Ps. It's not too late. Yes. Not too late. Okay. So so we'll we'll do something a a little different today, Excellency. We're going to talk about Mm -hmm. a saint and a soon-to-be blessed. Yes. uh, in, in two popes, John the Twenty Third mm-hmm. and John Paul the First, both who had very very brief papacies, relatively speaking, right? Uh, each left an impact on the church. Of course, John the Twenty Third left a huge impact on the church. Yes, right. But it's, and therefore, one of the lessons to be drawn is while we talk about the, their personalities and histories and stuff, is we should never underestimate what grace can do through us. It's never quantity. It's always quality. Yeah. It's always allowing ourselves to become vessels of grace through the power of the Holy Spirit. And you really do not know how you and I can affect others, can make change, can make lasting change. Yeah. John the 23rd would have no idea of what the implications were of much of what he did because he did not even live through the end of the Second Vatican Council. Right. Nor through its implementation. So interestingly, John was Pope only four years and seven months. And he was in many ways elected almost as a surprise because it took, rumor has it, because of course it's under papal secrecy, but 
there are only mysteries, no secrets really in the Catholic Church. It, it, mm. <laughs> um, it, supposedly it was 11 ballots that elected him, right? At a time when there were only 70 cardinal electors, the vast majority of whom were European and the majority of those were Italian. Right. Right. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, it was John who raised the number from 70 to 85, but 70 have been in effect for four centuries, really since Trent. And he was a surprise and he created a surprise because he called for the Second Vatican Council. He called for the revision of canon law. He revised the Roman Missal in 1962. In fact, the Roman Missal that is being used in the what, what's called the ancient use, the older use, what we used to call the extraordinary form, is the Missal of 1962 of John the 23rd. Right, yes. Right? right. So he did a lot in a short amount of time, which is amazing, no? Yeah. But what, what I find fascinating about John is his personal history, right? He was a remarkably simple man, in part because he was the son of sharecroppers. Now, there was some connection to nobility in Italy centuries ago, but I mean, chances are half of Italy could claim that, right? <laughs> but his immediate mother and father were sharecroppers, they were farmers, right? And if you want a glimpse and say, well, wh why did this man do the things he did, which were quite extraordinary in his life, you have to go all the way back to the beginning, right? He, he was a secular Franciscan as a young man. So you already see a connection in spirit between John XXIII and Pope Francis, who even though he's a Jesuit, chose the name Francis, all right, because much of his emphasis, our current Holy Father, on mercy and dialogue is echoed in John the 23rd, right? Whose formation was very much Franciscan. Interestingly, he was a canonist and he was a diplomat, right? He was in Bulgaria, he was in Turkey, he was in Greece, he was the nuncio of France, right? So he had a distinguished diplomatic career, a canonist, which means he was a lawyer, I presume a good one, right? But in World War II, he was conscripted by the Italians to serve as both chaplain and stretcher bearer for the sick. So he carried wounded Italian soldiers to their medics and to their first aid. So it was both a care of body and spirit. Isn't that interesting? Hmm. Hmm. Right? Um, his sister died from stomach cancer. He himself would die from stomach cancer. So obviously it ran in his family. And from, the little, from what I read about John the 23rd, he had attempted to get to his sister's side before she died and, she was, and he was unable to, right? Because of the, of the death of Pius the 12th, he was not able to leave his post. So he went for her funeral, but not to say goodbye to her. And for what I understand, they were very close. Right? They were close. So when I say to you, my friend, uh, John the Twenty Third, what what are the what what is the what are the images that come to mind for you, or the, the things that you know about John the Twenty Third? When we're talking about the man, just yes. the man himself, what comes to, to mind? 
Um, well, so <laughs> I didn't really know that much about him um, before I did a little homework for today. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but uh, so all I knew of him was that uh, uh, he was, uh, his name was Ron Colley. And I knew that because um, at Boston College, we have a, uh, a building named after him. And, oh, he had uh, two, actually, at Sacred Heart, too. Oh, Same. okay. Mm-hmm. All right. And, uh, and, and I only knew that um, he had initiated um, Vatican II. And I really didn't know that much more about him before I did some homework. You did your homework? Yeah. Yes. So what's one word that describes him? Pick one word. Um, good. Ah, excellent. Mama used to say that. My mother used to call John the 23rd the good pope. And almost m- most Italians call him the good pope. Not to say that the other popes are not good. <laughs> but, <laughs> but good in the sense of buono, good in the sense of good-hearted, good yeah. in the sense of genial. Right? He was the first pope in the modern world to use the word I and not we. Hmm. Right? In private. And John, and John Paul I was the first to do it in public, right? He dropped the royal we completely, But some of the things that strike me, his intervention, which we could talk about in a bit, to to serve the Jews and to to, um, become of assistance to the Jews during the Holocaust and to try as best he could to hide them and protect them and save them is a remarkable aspect of his life because in the end this good right pope the goodness of this man was always open to see the good and the beauty in others you know he in turkey did a tremendous amount of outreach to the muslim community when it would have been unheard of right in catholic circles he was the one who reached out to the Orthodox initially, who we had been separated from for almost a thousand years. He actually opened up dialogue with communist countries in Eastern Europe for the sake of the Christians who were being persecuted. So one of the things that describes this man is dialogue, right? To be willing to sit down and talk Right? to become empathetic to someone else's position, not because you accept the position, but because it allows you an opportunity to speak with that person and hopefully allow that person to come to understand the truth as you yourself are presenting it. So this whole movement of ecumenism, which is the dialogue among Christians for greater Christian unity, in very much embodied John the 23rd and his whole philosophy on life. But I must tell you, the other thing that struck me, and I knew this from years ago, was his sense of humor. He was a riot. He was an absolute riot. For example, the very fa- you must have heard this quip, the famous quip. He was asked once, how many people work at the Vatican? And he said, about half. <laughs> <laughs> Right? He, he, to show you how good he was, he was hefty, God bless him, right? He was no small man. Right. right. He enjoyed his meals, which is ironic, right? But he enjoyed his meals. So 
when he was elected pope, remember the, the chair? Yes. Seated gestatory, you would go around and see the bunny be carried. So John XXIII paid them by the pound to carry him. <laughs> because Pius XII was tiny, he was thin, my God. But he was a lot more, he was a, 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 a bigger handful, let's put it that way. <laughs> okay? So he paid them by the pound. Can you imagine? Yeah. Then there's the story of the first time he put on the cassock. Remember in the cassock? When, see, when the cardinals go into conclave, they don't know, obviously, who's, who's elected pope. Right. So protocol is that Gamarelli's, who is the pope's tailor, um, whose shop is actually by uh, Santa Maria Sopra Minerva, by the, um, by the, uh, uh, by the Pantheon. Mm-hmm. Um, they make three cassocks, small, medium, and large, <laughs> to try to accommodate whoever may happen to be elected. And when John was elected, <laughs> or when Roncalli was elected, the large did not quite fit. Oh, boy. <laughs> so they needed bobby pins, all right, to kind of hold it all together. <laughs> and... A couple of months later, when he was at some audience and a woman, <laughs> kind of, you know, in the operatic whisper, said to her friend within earshot of the Pope, gosh, he is fat. Oh, no. <laughs> the Pope called out to her and said, madam, the conclave is not a beauty contest. <laughs> <laughs> But that's the sort of man he was, right? He could laugh at himself. Yeah. He could laugh in the sense of remaining joyful in the most dire of situations in life. I mean, after his death, there was a study done on behalf of his being called a righteous Gentile by mm. the Jewish state. And he was so recognized because of all of the remarkable work he did to save the Jewish people, as many as he could, through his context in France, through his context in Turkey and Greece. And he actually, in many ways, created lifelines where there were certificates of baptism that were presented for people who were not baptized. And one could argue, you know, did the end justify the means? But in this case, right, you're talking of an evil regime, the Nazis. Mm -hmm. And there were others who were baptized, right? But, but the truth of the matter is, there were thousands who were saved at his hands. So John XXIII was canonized on the same day that John Paul II was canonized. Do you remember? Yes, I do. Yes. Right? It was Divine Mercy Sunday in 2014. Wow, it's been that long. <laughs> 2014. And John was um, entered the, the final process of canonization without a second miracle, which we're going to talk about in a bit, about canonization, because mm -hmm. it's interesting as the process, right? But he, without a second miracle... 
precisely in lieu of the virtue that came from the fruit that resulted from the Second Vatican Council. One of the most famous encyclicals John wrote was Pacem et Terra. Pacem et Terris. Pacem et, and it was peace on earth, right? Mm -hmm. And he speaks about this desire for fraternity among humanity and basically the rights that all people have to the basic goods and society of life because justice can't exist with, um, peace can't exist without justice. And actually justice, right, is not real justice without peace in the end. So, and he... So Catholic social teaching had a tremendous step forward under John XXIII as well. So in many ways, he was quite a remarkable man. Now, what's interesting is he called the Vatican Council, but he did not see it to its end. His friend... Right, who had become St. Paul VI, whom we spoke about in another pocket, yes. brought it to conclusion. And there's much speculation about whether or not the council was completed the way he intended and was implemented the way he intended. But quite frankly, I'm not sure that is um, a useful speculation even to go down the path, because in the end, the implementation of the Vatican Council the calling of the council, everything the church does in its magisterium is inspired and guided by the Holy Spirit, not by the actors. If they're truly being faithful, then they are the vessels of the grace and the inspiration to move the church forward. So were there mistakes that came out of the Vatican Council? Of course there were. The vast majority of those were on the local level. People who didn't bother to read the documents, didn't bother to read the implementation, and took things to perhaps extremes that were never intended. But that's not the fault of John the Twenty-Third or Paul the Sixth or even the congregations of Rome, but the local individuals, particularly the pastors, right, who who decided to go further than what perhaps the church was intending. Right? So, in many ways, the Vatican Council is probably, perhaps after Trent, the most talked about, written about, examined council in all of the history of the church. And I wonder to myself, how many of those individuals have actually read and studied its documents, right? So it's a lot of times, it would be similar if I spoke about you, Steve Lee, and spoke about everything I've heard other people say about you, but never really bothered to meet you, to learn from you directly. Does that make sense, right? Does that? Yes, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. yeah. I, and I, I feel like people who um, are the most vocal about what they see, see as problems from Vatican II. I mean, tell me what you find offensive in De Verbum or Lumen Gentium or Sacrosanctum Concilium or, um, right. Gaudium et Spes. No. I mean, what, what, what's there, wrong there with isn't. Right. Exactly. No, um, there isn't. Right. Yeah. I recently met, uh, a faithful woman, uh, here in my home parish who, uh, after mass one, one Sunday, excellency said that she is mm -hmm. now reading the documents of Vatican II, thanks to your suggestion. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, but, but yeah, 
I hear the beautiful. Yes, they're beautiful, and even uh, uh, the Declaration of Religious Liberty is beautiful, because in the end, a faith is is a gift to be to be to be received. It's not imposed, right? We don't force people into faith; we invite them into faith, and there's a basic liberty there that is essential, right, to our relationship with God, because God doesn't force us to love Him; He invites us to love Him. He moves everything in the direction to love him, but he doesn't, because if he did, it wouldn't be love, right? So it's, right, that's exactly, but these are the intuitions of the, of, of the Vatican Council that now are finally, I think, being understood the way they were intended after all the noise and distraction going on, right? You know, let's go back just for the protection from the Jews, all right, for the Jews. It was John the 23rd, who eliminated the reference in the Good Friday ceremonies, right, the Passion of the Lord, that called the Jew perfidious, that is, faithless, okay? Because, in, because the truth is, we've spoken about this, and Monsignor Massey did a great job of talking mm-hmm. about this, right? Yes, yes. That God never goes back on his word or on his covenants. So the Jewish people have a privileged relationship precisely because they were the first to receive the word of God and the covenant that came with it, and that covenant remains in place. Right? So in that sense, he, he, he did just a tremendous amount right, of good. Yeah. And the interesting thing about John the 23rd and John Paul I is that they were both patriarchs of Venice. Huh. <laughs> right? before they became Pope. And I'm not sure John wanted to go to Venice, right? I think he had to be persuaded to go to Venice because I think he enjoyed what he was doing as Nuncio in part because he was so effective, right, in doing what he was doing. So overall, the good Pope has left us a tremendous legacy of pastoral openness, of dialogue, of uh, a pastoral heart that is good-natured, that can laugh at itself, one who is profoundly committed to the truth, but um, prefiguring Pope Francis's emphasis on accompaniment, he would do that with those that the world at the time did not want to accompany or had already characterized as not worth Right, a company, and he was courageous. Right, you know, if you wanted to sum up everything about John the Twenty Third, it's something that, that I often do. You know, you could well imagine the precious intentions, right, of being Pope in the early sixties. Mm. Just think of the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? Um, that could have brought the world to world war or a nuclear holocaust. And of course, the stresses and strains of having 5,000 bishops in council, right? Who probably had 4,999 opinions on just about everything. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was the awakening of, the, of, the, of the, this move towards secularism, right? Yeah. Because a lot of what appeared to be healthy was not healthy, particularly in the West. If it was, we would not have had the reaction. 
You see, in the end, it's a fallacy to think that the Vatican Council caused the uproar in the church in the 60s because it may have been the catalyst of people making choices, but they were already harboring in their hearts a lot of this well before there was a Vatican Council. Right? It, so, so he intuited all that. But John the Twenty-Third oftentimes would go to bed at night knowing all these things swirling in his head and in his very simple, humorous way would say, Lord, I'm going to bed. The church is yours. Yeah, right. You take care of it. And sleep like a baby. <laughs> I, I pray for that grace, my friend. I pray yes. for that grace. <laughs> yes, that faith and that detachment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, Excellency, let's let's take a quick break and uh, come back on the other side and talk about uh, Pope John Paul I. Mm-hmm. When we come back, you're listening to Let Me Be Frank, featuring Bishop Frank Caggiano on the Veritas Catholic Network, and we will be right back. If you're concerned about your end-of-life plans, searching for a Catholic cemetery, or have loved ones who are buried in one of the 14 Catholic cemeteries throughout Fairfield County, now might be a good time to begin planning for yourself or for other family members. Call one of our family advisors at 203-742-1450 and select option 5 to leave a message or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. Many people don't realize that they can be buried with their deceased loved ones, even if all of the family's in-ground plots have been taken. The Diocese of Bridgeport Catholic Cemeteries provides in-ground burials, as well as columbarium and mausoleum options. This makes it possible to unite your family together in the same cemetery, and it's an opportunity to build a bridge for your family back to the church. Talking about this issue is not easy, but pre-need planning makes your wishes clear, reduces cost, and helps your family avoid difficult decisions at a time of grief and loss. You can start your planning now by contacting one of our family advisors at 203-742-1450 and select option 5 or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. We can guide you through the options, regulations, and considerations to help you make the best decisions for your family. The number is 203-742-1450 and select option 5 or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. All right, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. So, Excellency, before we uh, talk about Pope John Paul I, can we take a look at the, um, the process for canonization in the church? Yes. Yeah, I think that would be actually helpful. We may have done this once before. I don't, re- I don't recall. We did. But given the fact, we did. Given yes. the fact that there's still confusion, yes. um, I think it would be very helpful for us just to recall again what it is that happens when there's a canonization. And the first thing we have to remember is that there are saints and there are declared saints. So I joke about my mother being a saint. Honestly, in my heart of hearts, I do believe it. My mother had heroic holiness of life. I'm sure you know people in your life. But when a person is declared a saint, that means you, the church says there can be public veneration, whether it's on a local level, if someone's blessed, or on the universal level, if someone's a saint. So blessed Michael McGivney, right, the founder of the Knights of Columbus, a priest of the Archdiocese of Hartford, is a blessed. So his feast day is observed in Hartford, 
And we have received permission in Bridgeport to also have the observance because Bridgeport once was part of Hartford. Hmm. Right? But if he becomes a saint, there could be universal recognition. Now, if you die a martyr versus a confessor, there's difference. Because when you die for the faith, then that recognition does not require any miracles. To be a confessor, meaning that you've lived your life in word and witness, all right, confessing the faith, even with heroic sacrifice, then there is in the formal process requirement of two miracles to be declared a saint, one miracle to become blessed. Right? In the ancient church, there was no need for any of this because we didn't have the structure we have now that has evolved into a centralized structure. So for example, in the ancient church, um, a person would have been revered as a saint um, because of the, the holiness of his or her life. And the church would have built an altar over the grave and a church over the altar, and this person was a saint. Or there was veneration of the person, and therefore the remains of the person would have been, the relics would have been transported to an existing church and that person would have been venerated a saint. It was actually into, I believe, the 11th century, closer to the beginning of the 12th century, where there was this push to have it formalized more by Rome itself. And could, could you imagine over the Middle Ages, particularly the Dark Ages, into the Middle Ages, that there would have been some tomfoolery with this, hmm. right? That right. not all the stories were authentic. Right. And therefore Rome wanted to, to formalize it. I think it was in 1170 where the decree finally was issued to say that the public renovation, public veneration of a saint cannot be authorized without Rome's approval, without the Holy See's approval. So much of what we've been doing has been going for like 800 years. Now, John Paul II, I believe, simplified the process a bit. Pope Francis has also simplified it a bit because that had become very, um, let's put it this way, um, very complicated. Hmm. But what's interesting about all this is what makes a miracle a miracle? Have you ever asked yourself that question? What makes a miracle a miracle? Right. I, no, I, no, I have not thought about that. <laughs> yeah. What allows the, the congregation of saints to accept the testimony that something, in fact, is miraculous? Again, for, in preparation, this was something I, 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 I came upon, which, again, I'd always imagined there was no scientific explanation there's no medical explanation, therefore it's a miracle. But actually, there are five characteristics. That's only one. So the cure, if we're talking about a physical or even mental malady, sickness being cured, it has to be spontaneous, mm -hmm. instantaneous, complete, enduring, and no medical explanation. So, for example, if you had, God forbid, a terrible disease, cancer of, I don't know, whatever, God forbid, and it was terminal and you were dying, and it was spontaneous, right? They came out of nowhere. It happened instantly, right? It was complete. 
and there's no medical explanation, and three months later it came back, it was not enduring, it's not a miracle. Right. Right? And that allows then for the church to say, this is a divine intervention, right, through the intercession of the saint. And we know that the servant of God, venerable, blessed, and saint. Right? Now, um, there have been some remarkable individuals in the United States who have, been, have gone through the process of being canonized. One of them is Katiri Tekakwitha, mm-hmm. or Tekawitha, depending on how you want to pronounce it, right? the lily of the Mohawks. Yes. And, you know, and she's a Native American who was faithful to the church and to her faith, despite great odds. Right? So, in many ways, when we talk about John the 23rd and his canonization, which was lacking the second miracle, what we really have to remember is this entire process is at service to the Holy Father. Right? But it is ultimately the Holy Father who makes the declaration. So the, without the Holy Father, the process has no end, has no has no rationale. Hmm. And the Holy Father could, through the fruit of his prayer, actually dispense with any part of this process. And that's why John the 23rd was canonized without the second miracle. Now, there may be other miracles in the the works. I honestly do not know. And I'm sure there are. So So, one day, maybe we'll be saints. What do you think? Oh, I hope so. Good Lord, I hope so. Yeah, I've got a long way to go. <laughs> so, so there, there. So, just to kind of simplify it, there's three steps towards canonization. The first is they examine. Oh, four steps. Okay. Servant so, of God. Uh huh. Venerable. Uh huh. Blessed, and saint. Okay. Right, and the servant of God is the diocesan investigation. Okay, venerable is when it's approved by Rome, right? And venerable would mean that you have heroic life of virtue in both the theological and cardinal virtues. Hmm. Okay. Then beatifications if there's a miracle, and then the second miracle is seen. So okay. technically there are four. Got it. Okay, and I'm at the starting gate. But of course you have to be dead first, so I, I'm happy being at the starting gate. I'm not quite ready to go. <laughs> <clears throat> <laughs> then, you know, while we're talking about this, really quickly, uh, before we get to John Paul I, uh, tell me, like, who are your two or three favorite saints? Well, excluding Our Lady, because she, always, she would yes. be clearly the top. Um, St. Francis of Assisi, who is my patron. Mm-hmm. St. Anthony of Padua, who left a huge impression on me as a little boy. I told that story. Mm-hmm. St. Ignatius of Loyola. Because of the um, of the my exposure to Jesuit spirituality when I was a young man at Regis, right? okay, those would be the three. Then, of course, all the parishes I served: Saint Agatha, Saint Athanasius, Saint Jude, Saint Dominic hmm. have a special place in my heart. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, let, John Paul I. Yes, let's talk about about him. Nineteen seventy-eight. I'm at Douglaston, and when I was told that the Pope was dead, 
I honestly thought it was a joke, right? Because we had just buried Pope Paul VI. It was only 33 days, yeah. 33 days. I remember coming here to the diocese in 33 days. I still had no idea, right, where, even where the chancery was. <laughs> uh, you know, so 33 days, you're the Pope. I mean, my goodness. Uh, and, and yet, he had a fascinating effect on the church. Right? In fact, 1978, there were three popes, right? Paul VI, John Paul I, and John Paul II. Hmm, yes. So, do you know what the Italians called uh, JP1? Uh, did they call him the smiling pope? Right, the pope of the smile. <laughs> right. And again, because, remember, for the Italians and others who were older and saw the Pope more often. Remember, before there was lots of television, all the rest. They were always very somber, very mm. stately, very regal. And he was kind of like, where did he come from? <laughs> right? <laughs> and they, uh, Francis certified the miracle that will allow him to be, to be beatified on the 4th of September this coming year, which is interesting because we're only in February, so we really have a long way to go before he's beatified. Yeah. But I think in part, in part because they're hoping and praying that COVID would be much more under control, right, at that point. And therefore, there would be really the ability to have a, a larger gathering. And of course, we pray for that. So, I am sure you have seen online and in all of these crazy magazines and stuff, you know, the conspiracy theories oh, yeah. about JP2. <laughs> right, right. Where well, he was murdered by Freemasons in the Vatican Bank. <laughs> right, and he was poisoned and all the rest and all that stuff. <clears throat> so I think it, we should really set the record straight. What do you think? Yes, let's do that. Okay. So not that I have firsthand knowledge, but everything I have read debunks all that, and rightfully so, for many reasons. Not least of which, JP1 had a very interesting morning routine. At 5.15 a.m. every morning, he would have coffee brought to him, un bel espresso, that you would get the, the engines rolling, mm -hmm. and he'd go to a sacristy and begin his prayers. So on the night before he died, he had confided with his close staff that he was having terrible chest pains and he refused to have the doctor called because JP1 had a long history, okay, of medical challenges. Hmm. In fact, it is a fact that he was offered the episcopacy more than once and he refused for more than once because of his bad health and he knew his health was not good. That is the part of the reason why it's reported that when he was elected, he said, all right, may God forgive you for what you have done. Interesting, no? So when 515 rolled around that morning and he did not come to the sacristy, 
there was, I believe, one sister in particular who went up to his apartment to see how, how he was doing. And when she knocked on the door and heard nothing, she became very concerned. And she was able to enter in with someone else. And he was, on, he was lying in bed, still in his pajamas, with his glasses that had slipped down towards the end of his nose. His body was already cold and his fingernails were already turning a deep blue. And he was propped up by two pillows with a light on and the imitation of Christ, right, that had fallen from him. So it's logical that something happened in the middle of the night that was cardiac. Yeah. Right? But when you think of it, you say to yourself, well, you could ask a lot of questions. So you debunk this whole crazy thing. But normally you would say, well, it seems like if there's such a thing as a happy death, which there is, that, I mean, to be in, the, in your bed reading The Imitation of Christ and please God, your soul is ready to be called home to the Father. It's, it, it, it's, it's a, a beautiful moment of grace, right? But you could ask yourself, well, why, Lord, for 33 days? And of course, 33 itself is quite emblematic because of the 33 years the Lord lived. Right? But again, it's quality, not quantity. Because in many ways, JP1 who, by the way, was the first pope in the history of the church to have two names. Huh, okay. Um, Set the stage for JP II. Because John Paul II had that same beautiful smile and openness to people, right? And he was mesmerizing, he was electrifying. Yes. So, in a sense, Paul VI was, as we've talked about before, he was also a diplomat and was an intellectual. And I think he had a much more of a reserved personality. When he went to Nazareth and spoke about the silence of the Casa di Nazareth, the silence of the house of Nazareth, that kind of gave you a clue in the personality of Paul VI, who was much more a reserved, quiet man. And JP II, right, was the man we know, and JP I was the bridge between the two. Mm. Right, that you want to evangelize, you, you hear all this stuff now, all these people write, God bless them all. You want to evangelize, you have to be joyful, you have to smile at people. Uh, <laughs> that's exactly what John Paul I did his whole life. Yeah. Right? So, um, his, his papacy was so short, I don't remember it, I was just a very, very young kid. Um, Oh my gosh, up in the seminary, how depressing. <laughs> but he, <laughs> uh, I mean, um, I guess, how do I put this? So he didn't, you know, quote, accomplish anything in that month. Mm-hmm. And yet he's on the road to sainthood. How do we look at this, Excellency? Ah, but what do we accomplish? What's to <laughs> accomplish except to be the vessel of the love of God? Let me ask you something. That's a great question. So let's hit the nail on the head. The only thing that truly matters is that which we accomplishes that has eternal meaning. Everything else 
is, you know, toys for big people to occupy themselves with. <laughs> right? So we spend an entire life building a career. It's wonderful. You move world events. Wonderful. In the end, what, will it make? what difference will it make unless there's the eternal significance, right? That it becomes the vehicle to which, by your faith, in the hope that you have, that you have been an agent of love, that is what lasts. So one could ask, maybe one of the lessons of his short pontificate is to teach us what really matters, what really is worth accomplishing, Right? Yeah. And in, in some way, shape, or form, uh, Thomas Aquinas came to that conclusion at the end of his life. Remember when we spoke about yes. the insight he had when he stopped writing? Yes. Right? And all the straw, everything he did was straw. Because as important as it is, the concepts we have, all the rest, when we stand in the beatific vision, we will know all things without any of that. But love gets us there. Love is what matters. An insight into Luciani, Albino Luciani, John Paul I, is his Episcopal model, which is humilitas, mm. humility, right? And in the end, I have, I would, now that we're beginning Lent, right? So we're starting Lent. That is another prerequisite to spend Lent well, is to do a really honest, down-to-earth, brutally clear examination of how humble am, am I versus how prideful I am. Because if you're going to love, and I'm going to love, then I have to be willing to give myself over. And a prideful person, how does that person do that? Mm. If you cling to yourself. So it's interesting, right? We could speculate as to what he would or could have done, but that was not his place. Yeah, That was for John Paul II to do. Is, is that why uh, Cardinal Wojtyla chose the name John Paul II? You know, it, it's an interesting question. I, I, that's, I do not know. I do not recall. But it would make sense for continuity, hmm. right? Because in the end, it was John the 23rd, Paul the 6th, and John Paul the 1st. Okay, so he's connecting the two. Yeah. Right? The two parts of the Vatican Council and all the rest. So he's connecting them. So John Paul II is connecting with John Paul I. So you could see it as four popes, right, in continuity with each other. Yeah. It's an interesting, right? Huh. And so that's, that goes from what? Uh, 19, my gosh, uh, 58 to. I forget now the year that John Paul II died. It was like 2005 or 2006 or something like that, I think. Yeah, I forget exactly now. But So you're looking at 20, 30 years or more, right? Yeah. Just a, a huge yeah. expanse of time. Right? No, I think actually it would have been later than that. But we could check for our next podcast because I, I don't recall. 
but it's it's a tremendous tremendous um, testimony to what it means to be Catholic. Yeah, right? yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, when, so when I I did a little homework on John Paul the first, mm-hmm. um, I, I saw this story, and it's a testament to the. Um, the rigorous nature of the examination of miracles. The church does not just lightly mm-hmm. take, mm-hmm. Uh, as you were saying, Excellency. So they, mm-hmm. I guess uh, the first miracle that came to them, they did an investigation over three years and said, you know what, uh, this cannot be attributed to John Paul I. Um, I, I, I like seeing stuff like that because it, it you know, because of exactly what it means, it, you know, we don't, we don't just, it's not a saint making factory. We don't just like put people through. We really examine. Right. Um, right. And then I guess the one that was approved was a little girl in Argentina. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, yes. <clears throat> I don't yes. know the details, but, um, mm-hmm. but so, but. Well, I would think many, many pr- uh, uh, submitted quote unquote miracles are not approved. Yeah. Right. And of course we would not know that. Right from our perspective, because they're only going to report on the ones that are in fact approved. But to your point, I think it should give consolation to people to say that this is not just you know a boys' club that all your predecessors have made saints, right? <laughs> because there is a, a true investigation involved. I find all of this fascinating. I do, because. Having lived in Rome those years, I don't think we as Americans have the real historic appreciation of the depth and breadth and complexity of running the church. Hmm. We have difficulty figuring out how to run our own culture, our own country. And our own country has become more uh, challenging to govern because we have, in fact, right, become much more diverse. And as we become more diverse, there's a need for dialogue, right, that for some reason our politicians don't want to engage in. Yeah. But imagine the diversity of the church, which exists in just about every country on earth with few exceptions. Yeah. Yep. Right? Think about when you bring all that together, how difficult it is to maintain a uniform discipline because there's uniform faith in what we believe, but also uniform discipline is really hard. Yeah. And it seems to me that, that Francis now wants to give back to the local Episcopal conferences and even local bishops a little bit more leeway to address the unique circumstances of their diocese and countries. When there was a time, in part because of a lot of the, of quote unquote, excesses of the Second Vatican Council on the local level, that Rome naturally brought it back to Rome to try to regulate. So now France is saying, but, we, but maybe we went too far in that direction. And there's always gonna be that tug, right? That pull and tug back and sure. forth. Sure, yep, mm-hmm. yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the church is guided by the Holy Spirit and protected by the Holy Spirit, but it's run here locally by humans. <laughs> right. The beautiful image of the people of God. We talk about Lumen Gentium. 
believe it's in the second chapter of the dogmatic constitution on the church. It speaks of us as the people of God. And I love that image because it, it reminds us of the human and divine dimension of the church. So we are a divine reality in the world, but we are made up of individual sinners who are very human. But we are still the mystical body of Christ. Hmm. Fascinating, no? Yeah. It's right. beautiful, actually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Excellency, let's take one more break. We'll come back with a listener question. And um, you are listening to Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. We'll be right back. All right, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. Excellency, here is the uh, question for this week. It says, Bishop Frank, thank you for the wonderful podcast. I recently listened to an episode of Restless where they talked about sacramentals. Can you help me distinguish sacramentals from superstition? Well, the whole question of superstition is a a perennial temptation um, in the life of faith because what superstition is, is an attempt to control um, the divine prerogatives. Superstition is to believe that by ritual or habit or word or gesture that somehow you can control what is going to happen. So really superstition is a failure of faith, is really what it is. Sacramentals are those items actions, rituals that help us to grow in holiness that are meant to lead us to the celebration of the sacraments, right? So they're extremely important, but they can be reduced to superstition. So can the sacraments be reduced to superstition too? Hmm. So in the end, right, in many cultures around the world, there is what we call syncretism that there are elements that are not of the faith that creep into the faith, right? And when that happens, then it is very hard to distinguish what is authentic and what is not. And superstition renders what is not more appealing, renders it more um, attractive and therefore we have to be on guard against it because it's a failure in the trust that we have in faith in God. We don't control God. We don't manipulate God. Simple as that. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yes. Yep. Perfect. Mm-hmm. And I love that this listener also listens to Restless, which of course is the show mm-hmm. on our air for millennials, by millennials. So it's a good show. And if uh, you're listening, you want to go back, you can find that podcast and, and, and listen to it as well. And if you have a question for Bishop Frank, you should send it in to us on social media or you can email questions at veritascatholic.com. Bishop Frank Caggiano is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So is Veritas Catholic Network. And as always, we would like to thank Foundations in Faith. A grant from the St. Therese Fund for Evangelization makes it possible for us to bring Let Me Be Frank to you. Foundations in Faith is committed to supporting and transforming pastoral ministries in the Diocese of Bridgeport, and you can learn more about their outstanding work at foundationsinfaith.org. Excellency, thank you so much for today, for kicking off Lent uh, in such a great way, and would you please give us your blessing? Absolutely. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. 
Heavenly Father, as you have adorned us this day with the gift of ashes, help us in the spirit of humility to stand before you in our sinfulness with contrite and humble hearts to seek your forgiveness, the conversion of our lives, that we may grow in holiness. Bless these days ahead of us. May they bear great spiritual fruit. And may the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit come upon us and remain with us forever. Amen. Amen. Steve, see you next week, my friend. Thank you, Excellency. See ya. God bless. Amen.